0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the first of our month of Best Picture winners with Unforgiven from 1992. Directed and starring Clint Eastwood, written by David Webb Peoples, with Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris, and Gene Hackman. This movie was nominated for nine Oscars, winning Best Picture, Director, and Supporting Actor, and is usually listed inside most top tens for Westerns of all time. So, Dad, i let you have free reign to pick our next four movies, all Best Picture winners. Why did you pick Unforgiven for the 90s?
1: Well, first of all, I thought it was probably one of the better films of the early 90s. There's a there's a, a space in the mid-90s where I'm kind of going, eh, and I looked at the various films. I, I liked the film. I hadn't seen it in a while. In fact, I think this is only the third time I've watched the entire film. The acting was superb. The storyline was crisp, who uh, had very good pacing. So I just liked the film and wanted to watch it again and it was on the uh,
0: available list, so I picked this one. I guess that's as good a reason as any. So what is your relationship then to this movie? I saw it
1: for the first time uh, released out on VHS probably within a couple of weeks after its VHS release. Again, this was uh, the early 90s when I had small children and Uh, It uh, took a lot of
0: effort as well as a lot of money to get out of the house. To be fair, you've had small children for going on almost 32 years. They just never really got that tall. Yeah. Anyway, uh, carrying on, I think the first time I watched this movie was probably within the last seven or eight years. It is, as we'll mention here coming up, one of the AFI 100 films for both 1998 and uh, 2007 when they did the 10th anniversary edition. And because of that, I was going to watch it anyway. It's also a Best Picture winner, and I've seen all of those at this point. But there were some things that I didn't really remember. I kind of breezed through watching this one and was a little bit bored. I could remember kind of the rough outline of watching it the first time, particularly the ending So I I would say that's probably one of the most indelible or memorable parts of the movie. But this movie didn't really strike me as, I don't know, one of the great classic Westerns. Really, either time that I've sat down and dedicated time to watch it. It would not be in one of my top uh, five to ten
1: films as far as my favorites. But it was just a very well-done film at a time when they weren't doing Westerns.
0: There's a significant gap in Westerns between, gosh, what, about 1980 and up until maybe about 2005, where these movies were just not being made. As much as America loved them in the 1950s and 60s, it just was not something that appealed to the average person by that point in time. And it had pretty much died out as an art form. So for this to win Best Picture and be only the third Best Picture winner from the Western genre was significant. And I think because of that, it gets propelled into a new stratosphere of classic Westerns. But we were talking about this a little bit earlier on today that I really don't know if it's all that different from some of its predecessors that Really, were the mentors of the Clint Eastwood era, and that being Sergio Leone, or for that matter, Sam Peckinpah, when he did uh, the Wild Bunch.
1: And I can understand that. And uh, again, I, I don't know if it was just that the, the genre had worn itself out, or had just people had lost interest in general. Because I think if at one point in time, I want to say it was like 1961, there was something like. 40 television shows based in the West. And a lot of that was because they were available and sold to the networks fairly uh, reasonably priced because the studios were doing the filming of these TV shows, uh, Maverick, uh, Bonanza, Gunsmoke. And they were using the back lots. So they had the sets for other Westerns they've done so they could film them relatively cheaply. And so I think part of it was... It's a time frame back then that you don't understand, which is the networks kind of controlled what was and wasn't popular to some extent because there were only three options. So if you did a decent show that was entertaining, even though it's not something most people would normally have watched, you didn't have options. So you would either watch the best thing that you found available or didn't have the TV on. So I don't know if Westerns were as popular as we think or because they were that available, they, they became more popular or there were some that were more popular than others. But even that said, I think the last Western I had seen before Unforgiven was Silverado. And I don't remember another Western of any notoriety coming out between then and this.
0: Yeah, I can't think of any major ones either, at least not ones that were critic darlings like this was. The one thing I will say and is often said about this movie going back and reviewing kind of the historical anecdotes at the time about this movie and the critic reviews is the phrase deconstruction of the classic Western pops up in almost everybody's review. I think it's the number one thing that's said about this movie because it becomes the anti-hero where everybody is not necessarily good and there's no particular person that you can invest in, but not everyone is also purely bad. True. I mean, it's not the white hats and the black hats. And yet, I think from a wide audience perspective, we often like our character roles more easily defined. I think the critics tend to associate better, and maybe we've been trained a little bit more as an audience, particularly in TV, to accept and enjoy anti-heroes more than we used to. But I think one of the reasons that IP like Star Wars or some of the comic book films are much more easily digestible to the general population is, is there's a really defined bad guy and a really defined good guy. And they really don't do questionable roles too much within those parameters. I mean, you think about Star Wars, you have this empire-like, almost fascistic society that is being threatening to everybody across the galaxy, and you have an uprising or rebellion trying to undermine everything they're doing eventually to the point where they succeed in overthrowing the top figures in the empire. Or, for that matter, Spider-Man. He always has a very defined villain that he's going to fight against, and he's always going to make the right decision in the end. Even if he sometimes occasionally makes the wrong decision, by the end of the movie, you know he will be in the right. And so, I think one of the reasons that movies like this transcend in a critical appeal is because those movies get very tired for people that have to see 50 to 100 movies a year If you have very clearly defined good guys and bad guys, it just seems like a cop procedural. And you know how much I hate cop procedurals because it's just like the new rapist of the week on SVU. Movies should reflect the basic uh,
1: tenets of what is a human. I mean, even the most wonderful person has very troubling flaws if you look for them. And I think movies have a tendency to glorify too many people or villainize too many people because there's nuances in every aspect and there's nuances in everybody's actions and their motives. Even the most wonderful, uh, generous, magnanimous person has a
0: selfish streak. Absolutely. But I think we're always the heroes of our own stories. Even Actors who've often played villains do it so convincingly or do so convincingly because they always play it like they're in the right. And by making that small adjustment, we're able to portray a much larger degree of human reality and dig into subjects that we wouldn't otherwise have had. But again, I think the audience nowadays is a little bit more trained. I mean, we've had some of the great anti-heroes of all time. They just happen to most of the time be on television. Okay, let's dig a little bit deeper into this film and give you some background. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do.
1: William Money, Clint Eastwood, is a widowed farmer with a dark past. Money left his gunfighting days behind him to marry his wife. However, with his wife now deceased, Money is approached by a wannabe gunfighter, the Schofield Kid, James Wolvett, to assist him in killing two cowboys that cut up a prostitute in Big Whiskey, Wyoming. Facing a hard future as a farmer, Money eyes the $1,000 bounty as new hope for his family. He soon recruits his ex-partner, Ned Logan, Morgan Freeman, and joins in the effort to kill the cowboys. Little does he know that the Cowboys were protected by the local sheriff, Little Bill Daggett, Gene Hackman, a brutal, violent enforcer of the law, and a showdown looms.
0: Thank you. Cast for this movie, Clint Eastwood as William Money and as director, David Webb Peoples as the writer, Gene Hackman as Sheriff Little Bill Daggett, Morgan Freeman as Ned Logan, Richard Harris as English Bob. James Wolvett as The Schofield Kid, Saul Rubinek as W.W. W. Beauchamp, Francis Fisher as Strawberry Alice, Anna Thompson as Delilah Fitzgerald, David Mucci as Quick Mike, Rob Campbell as Davey Bunting, and Anthony James as Skinny Dubois. Recognition for this film? Unforgiven was released on August 7, 1992, and debuted at the top position in its opening weekend. Its earnings of $15 million, 7252 average from over 2,000 theaters, in its opening weekend was the best ever opening for an Eastwood film at that time. It spent a total of three weeks as the number one film in North America. Unforgiven currently holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 85 score on Metacritic. Unforgiven garnered nine Oscar nominations, including Best Actor for Eastwood, Original Screenplay for People's, art direction, cinematography, and sound. It won for Best Picture, Director for Clint Eastwood, Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman, and Film Editing. In June 2008, Unforgiven was listed as the fourth best American film in the Western genre behind The Searchers, High Noon, and Shane, in the American Film Institute's AFI's 10 Top 10 list. It was also on the AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998 at number 98, and AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition, from 2007, at number 68. In 2004, Unforgiven was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. The film was remade into a 2013 Japanese film, also titled Unforgiven, which stars Ken Watanabe and changes the setting to the early Meiji era in Japan. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked Peoples' script for Unforgiven as the 30th greatest ever written. Eastwood has also long asserted that this film would be his last western, concerned any future projects would simply rehash previous plot lines or imitate someone else's work. I might actually argue that Gran Torino, in a sense, was a western, just uh, dressed up in modern time. But even so. (laughs) Did you know? The final screen credit reads, Dedicated to Sergio and Don. Referring to Clint Eastwood's mentors, Sergio Leone and Don Siegel. Did you know? The script floated around Hollywood for almost 20 years. Gene Hackman read and rejected it, only to later be convinced by Clint Eastwood, who had owned the rights for some time to play a role. Did you know? It took Clint Eastwood several years to actually get around to reading the script, as his script reader had initially told him that it wasn't very good. Did you know? This is the third Western to win the Best Picture Oscar. The other two are... High Noon. No. High Noon lost to... The Greatest Show on Earth. Oh, yeah. 1990 and 1931, if that helps. (laughs) Dances with Wolves? Correct. And Stagecoach? No. Stagecoach was not a Best Picture winner. And then I don't know. We're talking about the film *Cimarron*. <laughs> that, okay, uh, yeah, not a very good film. Yeah, I know, but everybody remembers it because it's so cheesy. It's not really cheesy. It's just <sighs> yeah, the it is. Days of Hollywood, bad. Well, it's so overacted. Well, okay. I mean, that was when they were just starting doing talkies. Yeah. I mean, they overacted everything in silent films, too. You just couldn't tell. (laughs) As you get from Don Lockwood in The Dancing Cavalier. Did you know? Clint Eastwood's mother, Ruth Wood, toiled through an uncomfortable day, wearing a heavy dress, as an extra, filming a scene where she boards a train. However, the scene was eventually cut with her son apologizing that the movie was, quote, too long and something had to go. All was forgiven, however, when he brought her to the Academy Awards and thanked her prominently in his acceptance speech. Did you know? This movie laid to rest Clint Eastwood's long-standing statement why he would never win an Oscar. Eastwood reckoned he would never be in the running because, first, I'm not Jewish, secondly, I make too much money, Thirdly, and most importantly, because I don't give a fuck. Since his double Oscar win for this movie, Eastwood has gone on to win two more Oscars as well as the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award, and has been nominated an additional six times. Did you know? The boots Clint Eastwood wore are the same ones he wore in Rawhide in 1959. These boots are now part of Eastwood's private collection, and in 2005 they were loaned to the Sergio Leone exhibit at the Gene Autry Museum of Western Heritage in Los Angeles, California. The Boots basically bookended Eastwood's career in westerns. Did you know? According to Clint Eastwood in a 2000 interview, Gene Hackman was very concerned about how they were going to show the violence in the movie, concerned about rising gun violence in American cities. Eastwood assured Hackman that this movie wouldn't glorify gun violence. That is up for debate. Did you know? Morgan Freeman learned about this movie from Kevin Costner while filming Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves from 1991. Freeman approached Clint Eastwood and got the role of Ned Logan. Did you know? Clint Eastwood asked Gene Hackman to model Little Bill Daggett on then Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, I definitely could. I loved that anecdote when I found it. Wow. All right, so then let's cut over and uh, take our first break of the show. We'll be right back. Let's go to best performance then. Dad, who was your best performer? Uh,
1: Gene Hackman, without doubt. I mean, Hackman's performance was just phenomenal. He he could, in a moment, be somebody you liked and somebody you hated. Uh, and he could go back and forth fairly easily. it was it was never over the top. It was very subtle and understated performance. even the violence fit within his character. And then the braggadociousness to the uh, the writer uh, Saul Rubinick was playing was was just so precious as well. The final scene he basically, by pleading for his life is, um, Comes clean as being as big a coward as everybody would be in that situation. So we all know that ultimately he's bragging about everything, but the the method and manner by which he did it was so so planned, so well organized and done that you could see it coming, but not see it coming.
0: I'm not sure I quite understand your point.
1: You knew that it was bragging. And you knew that ultimately there was going to be some aspect of him that was going to come clean, that was going to show that it was bragging. But you also didn't quite understand that it was foreshadowing about all of his all of his stories about gunfighting and all of that, and how he talked about you know how you go about winning a gunfight and who who has the nerve to to stay stay the course and to fire. And ultimately, you knew all of this was basically him bragging. But you didn't really grasp the foreshadowing that everything he said that he would do or could do didn't end up happening in his confrontation with money.
0: Boy, I don't get any of that at all. I think you're reading something that I would say is not even there. Well, I'm sorry. That's what I think. So, I mean, realistically, I don't think he's bragging at all. In fact, I would say he's trying to give more of the realistic perspective instead of the glorified version that's the white hat and the black hat. I think most of those conversations are part of the deconstruction of the classic Western as opposed to something else. We always think of the guy who draws first and draws quickest usually is the one that's going to kill the other, and he simply undermines that story while they're sitting around in the jail And he's just telling him stories about cameraman Corky Corcoran. That was actually one of the crew members' names. They just adopted it into the story. But even that aspect, he was talking
1: talking about those stories in a way that made himself look good. And when he ultimately talks about, it's not necessarily the one who draws first, but it's the one who's the coolest under fire. And you get the distinct impression that he is claiming that he's that guy. That when the pressure hits, he can be the guy that's going to ultimately get the shot. Because he doesn't panic. He doesn't rattle. But yet, in the final confrontation with money, he's the one who rattles and misses the shot.
0: Yeah, I I certainly didn't get that one at all. Because... Even during the description of that story with Corcoran, he's talking about English Bob. And yes, maybe he's undermining somebody else to make himself feel better. But I certainly didn't get that it was somehow a propping of himself up in the eyes of what would be written about him. I mean, yes, he steals the biographer, but it's not like he's writing a biography specifically on Little Bill. I mean, that never really comes up.
1: But I think that's exactly what he's doing.
0: No, I think he's trying to understand how it actually is in the West. And that's why he even asked the question after money kills everybody in the end. Spoiler, of course, that who did you draw on first? Yeah. I I think it's part of an exposition that's actually well crafted into the script, as opposed to anything that is intentional for finding out what little bill is. But I guess I wouldn't know unless I asked David Webb to myself. That being said, going back to the original point of best performance and, and such, I was caught between two things, and I think this is probably, I would guess, where you're at as well, so we'll see. But it's a choice between who had the best peak performance, but some of the least to do at times, and that would be Hackman, or... The guy who ended up contributing the most, even though he wasn't the star per se. And that's Eastwood from the production of this film and choosing the script and directing it and getting the star performances and the casting together in getting all of these great actors together to do this movie. Then carrying parts of the film with himself and knowing exactly how to pull this off with the background that he had coming out of the 60s with the Leone movies. I think that you could make a a very complicated choice between Hackman who excels in his role, albeit as the supporting actor to Eastwood's primary character or choosing between Eastwood, who I think is equally great, but doesn't necessarily shine as well as Hackman does in this movie, just from the amount of contributions he had. So I came down on the latter side. I went with Eastwood as my best performer, but then I went with Hackman as my best secondary performer. So To piggyback your Hackman assessment, because he's also my most charismatic, he's the thing that really draws you into the film. And it, it seems like every time we talk about Gene Hackman coming from a film, we're both always just like in awe of his presence, because it wouldn't seem that he would be the most charismatic type guy to draw you into a film. And yet every time he's on screen, he's just the most energetic thing there. He draws you in and makes you part of the story, even though... You're doing it as an observer only. I don't know what it is about his ability or his talent, but he's just got some weird X factor. I've never been able to put my finger on it. And even as little Bill, he's given an exceptional part that you could say is probably worthy of being nominated as a a primary actor instead of Eastwood. I don't know. They share the movie and they're equal sides of two halves of the whole of this movie, and he shines throughout. I just can't really put my finger on it. But moving on to Eastwood, he gets my best performer just from the sheer amount of things that he had to do, and there's a reason I think he stated immediately after filming this that he was not going to act and direct in movies again. Obviously, that has not been the case because he's been doing that for another 25-plus years, And I mean, he just released what Cry Macho, which is another one he directed and starred in just last year. So I don't know if we're ever going to see Clint Eastwood not act in movies that he's directing until the day that he actually dies. But he is one of the most prolific directors and has probably some of the most famous movies of the last 70 years in Hollywood. Well,
1: and and the thing is, is I just got done reading an article where uh, the studio was complaining that their uh, marketing people said the next film Eastwood film was not going to be able to make back its money, but they were willing to pay for it nevertheless because Clint always comes in on time and under budget. And so they're always willing to fund his films no matter what because They're hoping that maybe the marketers are wrong. I I don't know, but uh, I just find it fascinating in in this day and age. Ultimately, the studio heads or the studio people are are influenced by a director who meets his deadline and comes in under
0: budget. Well, because almost every one of them is the exact opposite. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why we get three-hour cuts of... Movies that should probably be a 90-minute film. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody thinks they're the next Coppola. Yes, I know. So who was your best secondary then?
1: I went with Eastwood for a lot of the same reasons you had, but I will make a point of saying, even though he didn't have a whole lot to do in the film, Morgan Freeman is just... I don't think I ever have ever seen a film that Morgan Freeman's in where I'm just not in awe of this guy. I mean, he is just such a phenomenal actor. He can take anything, any part, and make it much bigger than the part should be. And so I had a hard time not going with him, but Eastwood ultimately, just because of how much other stuff he had to do uh, between the directing and the acting... I had to go with him, but I just wanted to mention Freeman.
0: I'm going to look it up because there has to at least be one film where Morgan Freeman plays it and you're like, why did I see that? (laughs) Oh, that's right. He's in the judge or he's the judge in the bonfire of the vanities. Oh, well, I've never seen it. You've never seen it? No, I haven't. Uh, That's right. You're not a De Palma fan. No. Yeah, he randomly shows up i mean if you listen to the tcm podcast for their season two which was the devil's candy the making of the bonfire of the vanities like they just eviscerate the choice to make morgan freeman somehow the judge in this like i'm trying to think is it like in the bronx uh (laughs) where this whole thing takes takes place and it just doesn't make any sense at all anyway I don't know. That's not necessarily Morgan Freeman's fault. Yes. Regardless, he's going to definitely come up with a few different movies as we of course move forward. So as I said then Gene Hackman is my most charismatic. So who did you have down? <laughs> I had Gene Hackman. It it just floors
1: me. Okay, he is not a guy that is has movie star looks. Right? He's not the smooth, good-looking He's more of a character actor, but who gets leads? I don't understand exactly what it is about him. Maybe it's a sense of confidence. Maybe it's a sense of, I don't give a shit what you think. I'm just going to do my job and do it very well. And that comes through. But there's just something about the guy. you know. And then uh, I was reading some stuff about him and researching for the show. You know, after he did the uh, uh, Welcome to Moose Jaw, or Jaw. Welcome to Mooseport. Oh, Welcome to Mooseport. He just decided he, uh, eh, I'm tired of acting. So uh, I'm getting up. It's getting harder, so I'm just going to stop. I'm going to become
0: a novelist. He's written four novels. Good for him. I mean, I can't argue with his decision. He'd accomplished just about everything that you'd want to in a career. Yep. And he's he's done. He did a couple in we co-wrote,
1: and then he did one recently or about uh, five years ago that was him individually. He's got he and his second wife are living in near Santa Fe. He has a ranch there, and uh, he that's his life and that's what he likes. Uh, he apparently still rides a bicycle several miles a day every day for exercise around Santa Fe, and he's in his nineties now.
0: Yeah, I know. And I think I saw a recent picture of him and it looks like he lost a ton of weight. I know he's in his mid 90s, but that'll be one that I'll be sad to see come across the in memoriam list whenever it happens. Yes. So best scene. I actually couldn't nominate a lot of scenes from this movie. I thought that there's a lot of setup to this that seems kind of matter of fact and exposition that the further on into the film you got, the more engaging this thing was. But it had so much for probably about the first hour where it's just trying to get the all of these characters in the right place at the right time to start interacting amongst each other. And then when it starts to, or they start to come in contact with one another, everything combusts. So I kind of really start about that point in the movie. Little Bill taking out English Bob. The Corky Corcoran story, which I mentioned before. Little Bill running money out of town or at least out of the bar and uh, beating the crap out of him. Then killing the first man, which is them basically sniper shotting. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but uh, the friend that held the prostitute down. Yep, Davy, And then the outhouse murder, which is actually a Schofield kid uh, taking care of the one guy. And then obviously the final shootout. So are there any that you felt I missed? No, but there were so many scenes that weren't really scenes. They were just scenes that led
1: into something else. You could have almost, instead of having cuts between scenes, just had fade outs and fade ins. And would have made as much sense because they kind of were relying on each other. There was nothing independent about a lot of them. I think you did about as good a job as you could with this film.
0: I think there might be one now that I'm just kind of rethinking it in my head, and it had been a minute since I had uh, seen the film when I started putting my list together, but one I maybe should have included just because of the significance of some of the dialogue might have been the scene between Delilah, who was the cut-up prostitute, and Bill, or Will Honey, and just because of the significance of that scene where he's still committed to his wife, but he also tries to tell her that there's life beyond because while she has scars on the outside, his are all internal and that makes him uglier than her. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a very good scene as far as the dialogue and such.
1: So, so
0: out of those, what do you think
1: is the best scene? Oh, <sighs> I guess the best scene is ultimately the ending because it's just so much there money. Uh, Comes out from the uh, reclusive individual he had become to regain his uh, his form as a villain, as a horrible, you know, gunfighter killer, and or in seeking revenge uh, or vengeance. And uh, Bill, little Bill, realizing his death is imminent. It's just so much going on in that scene you know, the entire film builds to that climax.
0: Well, I find that to be the case in a lot of Westerns that there's a building excess of tension. And even if there will be like a gunfight at the beginning or something, you know, there's going to be a combustible end that is the end of almost every Western that I can name. There's one at Rio Bravo. There's one at high noon. There's one in uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. There's one in the wild bunch. And this movie is no different, except that most of the major action, the, okay, we want to see Clint Eastwood be a badass, happens in that one scene. And it's when he starts turning back to the drink, ironically. Yes. So I would agree with you. I think it's the best scene. It's probably my favorite scene because it was like the one where I finally sat up and I said, okay, I'm really going to pay attention now and make sure that I have this. And, and it's the most memorable because it's the first thing I thought of immediately, coming back to this movie, because I think it's probably been at least five years since I saw it the first time. I think it's the most memorable thing about this. Well, it's not my favorite scene. My favorite
1: scene is different. My favorite scene is little Bill and uh, the writer, Saul Rubinick's character talking about the West and Bill describing how things really were and um, talking about ultimately the gunfight and, And who wins? It's not the quickest draw. It's the one who has the steadiest hand and the one who doesn't panic.
0: The two guns Corcoran scene.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and um,
1: as you say, for somebody who prides themselves on being eerily calm in times of crisis, I I found that very satisfying.
0: Wow. That related to you? (laughs) I knew you'd throw that out there. So, what is your
1: most indelible then? The ending, because yeah. that is the part that I remembered. I, like I said, I had watched it. I hadn't watched it in thirty years. Maybe I think I watched it maybe one other time shortly after. So it's probably been twenty-five years, and that's the scene I can remember. I couldn't remember the setup or how it took place or anything about it per se, except the ending with the gunfight and the ultimate death of. Uh, Little Bill and Money's rise back as as a bloodthirsty
0: outlaw. All right, that seems like a good stopping point for our second break of the show. We'll be right back. Next week, we will be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with a mostly forgotten Best Picture winner from 1947. Gentleman's Agreement, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Moss Hart and starring Gregory Peck, Celeste Holm and Dean Stockwell. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the real good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L G-O-O-D. You could also sign up for our newsletter at the new Ronnie Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the Handle at G Mode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. So, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We have a few. Uh, Mary Mara, uh, actress who had been
1: on a lot of television shows. Uh, Nash Bridges, ER, Civil Action, passed this week, uh, Drowning. I I forgot to check, but is she related to the Mara family that uh, has produced the owner of the Giants as well as the uh, two Mara actresses? Kate and Rooney? I don't know. I wonder. I, I didn't check, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, untimely death, unexpected. Robert A. Katz uh, was an American film producer and television producer. Uh, he did one of my favorite Civil War films, Gettysburg. He did uh, Selena, a biopic. In television, he did in- introducing Dorothy Dandridge. He was involved, in. I-, I believe he not only produced, but he worked at times as an agent, if I remember correctly. Tony Saragusa, most predominantly known as an American football player and sideline commentator for Fox uh, Sports, also had a part uh, in The Sopranos, Uh, so therefore he had uh, his acting card, and uh, apparently made several guest appearances on Sopranos as a member of one of the family. I don't remember him ever
0: being on the show. I had to look it up, but that's he's credited, I think he had four appearances on the sopranos. He must be like a background actor somewhere because I don't remember him ever having a line in the show, and I've seen it like two or three times. <laughs> okay, I know. So when I saw that, when I saw the bio
1: and it said "Actor," I had to look it up. So that's why he's included on the list. Then we have uh, Duncan Henderson, American film producer. He did Master and Commander, of the Far Side of the World, Oblivion. Uh, Space Jam and New Legacy, uh, and then lastly we have James Rado, ninety American actor, Lions Love, was also a playwright and composer. He uh, did uh, Hair, um, which was a Grammy or won a Grammy, was a big Broadway production, and then made a, uh, a film in the early seventies uh, as well from.
0: I'm definitely not familiar with some of these. Obviously, producers aren't on screen, so I don't get as much time with them. I was never a big watcher of ER, so I'm not as familiar with Mary Mara. I guess, oddly enough, the one I have the most connection to is Tony Saragusa, who happened to be a member of the 2000 Ravens team that I was really a fan of at the time, even though they're not necessarily a, a team that uh, I often root for even now. But for whatever reason, that that team was kind of fun to root for especially that that year in the playoffs and I know we made a lot of jokes about him as a sideline reporter because we thought a lot of his comments were asinine and dare I say Matt Millen-esque but (laughs) it's kind of sad to see somebody that I grew up watching play football pass away at I would say probably a younger age even though I've told you for years that 55 is pretty old. Eh, fuck you. Hey, we're supposed to be memorializing the dead here. Show some respect. I am for them. Anyway, we memorialize them here with a moment of silence. Thank you. Let's go to Best Funniest Lines. I only have two nominees written down because I just didn't find this to be a great dialogue movie. The Schofield Kid and Will Money. After killing a man for the first time, it don't seem real. How he ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. How he's dead. And the other one, too, all on account of pulling a trigger. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. Take away all he's got and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah, well, I guess they had it coming. We all got it coming, kid. You don't have to worry, kid.
1: I ain't going to kill you. You're the only friend I got.
0: The only other one I had down is one you've kind of mentioned a few different times. Little Bill Daggett. Look, son, being a good shot, being quick with a pistol, that don't do no harm. But it don't mean much next to being cool-headed. A man who will keep his head and not get rattled under fire, like as not, he'll kill you. And then the last one I have, Little Bill Daggett.
1: I'll see you in hell, William
0: Money. By the way, isn't that one of the most ironic names in the history of cinema? Bill Money? (laughs) All right, bad jokes aside. You ready for the Stanley Rubric? I am. All right, so Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. Okay. I might be a lot lower on these than some people might have thought, but... I only gave this a four for the industry because while it's mentioned among the greatest modern Westerns and the deconstruction of the classic Western, it won Best Picture, probably the most celebrated of Eastwood's directing career. I just don't find this to be like one of the first films that anybody talks about that's maybe under the age of 40 as a great Clint Eastwood film. They're immediately drawn to either the Leone movies or Dirty Harry. Those are the ones that are the celebrated Eastwood films as far as his acting. I mean, I understand it from a directing perspective, but how many people say, damn, I really loved Clint Eastwood as a director. I mean, he's just not held in that regard, even though I think he's actually been a fairly successful and pretty good director through at least from about, what, the mid-80s through about the mid-2000s before he kind of started to fall off. So I don't know. It it just strikes me as one that, oh, it's Clint being Clint making another movie because that's exactly what he loves to do. And he's been part of the movie industry, just pumping out films for 70 years. That's just what he does. And as you mentioned it before, he comes in under budget and uh, on time every single time because he's got such a precise way of doing things and people still like to work with him. He is an icon of Hollywood, but at a certain point it just kind of loses its significance due to the prolific nature of how many films he's directed and produced, even though he's won, I think at least three or four Oscars at this point. So I don't know. I I just, I can't quite get this one to a five given the amount of fives we've recently been giving out for some of the other films. And For the audience, I mean, how many people are really going back and rewatching this movie other than like movie fans or critics or or such? Like, is this a movie that anybody's going to come up to you and say, hey, I rewatched Unforgiven last night. That film's really awesome. I don't think I've ever met that person. Like, I've seen a lot of people that listen to our Rio Bravo episode because I think that's like one of the classic John Wayne feel good films but I just don't see a lot of people going toward the searchers or uh, the wild bunch as they are some of these classic Westerns where it's the good and the bad guy and the equally uh, definable character traits. So to me, this one is kind of a bit lost in the clutter of some of the biggest movies of the 90s. I mean, yes, this one wins best picture in between Schindler's List and The Silence of the Lambs, which I think probably are both better films. And as such, I i don't know. Did it really have that much appeal in the year it was released? I don't often see huge think pieces on this movie. I think it's solid in its moment when it won its Oscar, but I just don't see much higher on people's list of films I've got to see. So I went with a two and a half and just split it down the middle and so that gives me a 6.5 overall
1: for me the industry. I think that a lot of people had it on their or have it on their lists of great films and such, but <laughs> not their favorite films. So even the industry, it's not something that people just automatically talk about when you're compiling a list, it, you know, people will come up with their lists of films or best films or such, and then you'll mention, "Oh, yeah, 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 I probably should put that down too." Okay, that is not a hallmark of a film that's left an indelible mark in your memory. This does not. And I think even from the industry point, uh, I think it, uh, it it does not hold up as well long-term as it did within the time of its release. It's a great film. I mean, I have no question. It's just not a beloved film, even by the industry. So I wanted 3.5 for the industry. And for the public, I think if you walked up to somebody on the street, and I'm, you know, various ages, and just said, what do you think of Unforgiven? They're going to look at you like you have a third eye on your forehead, because they're not going to know what you're talking about until you put it in context. Okay, and so because of that, it's just not part of the pop culture. It's not been anything. This is not a question of all the Clint Eastwood films. The number of Clint Eastwood films that people will be able to recite lines from, this is just not one of them. And so it's well, it was well-crafted, it was well-written, it was well-shot. Everything about this says it's great, except it doesn't have the wow factor. Some films have a wow factor, just a factor that says that it sets it up as being something so unique, so impressionable, so... It leaves such an impression or mark on your memory and on your feelings, on your emotions, whatever you want to do. It just has something that stays with you. This film does not. This film is easily forgettable within a week after you see it. And for the most part, I forgot a lot about it. So I went with a 2.5 for the public for that reason. So that gives me a 6.
0: I would never have guessed that you'd be below me on that score. But I mean, your reasoning is on the same level as mine, realistically, or at least not that much different impact significance. I think this is another one where it was bigger in the moment than it was continuing on. This is one of those that we often talk about in a best picture year, but isn't the one that's really remembered other than the fact that it won best picture. It had good critical reviews. It was a best picture winner. It got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. And it really was the movie that dominated the Oscars that year. Number one for several weeks and some life after the Oscar nominations. But it's not like it really made Clint Eastwood a star or really celebrated his directorial debut. I mean, it was his first Oscar, but okay. So we had our moment for crowning Clint Eastwood as a big Hollywood star, That pretty much had been done 20 years before that, and he didn't really care, as he's mentioned before. Morgan Freeman might have been a couple of years away from his big peak of the 90s, but it's not like he was somebody that people didn't know about. He was already requesting significant sums of money to be in Bonfire of the Vanities and had been in quite a few other movies, including one we just discussed, I think, about last year this time, Glory. And this is Gene Hackman's second Oscar I mean, he'd done numerous things that he was recognized for before then. I think this maybe kicked off the last big push of his career where he was really celebrated for a lot of movies he did in the mid-90s where he was a big secondary supporting star in a lot of things. We, You and I watched uh, Crimson Tide last year. That's one. Enemy of the State with Will Smith. I mean, there are just some movies from his kind of mid-90s run that are really significant yet.
1: Well, in the one of my favorite roles of the uh, 90s for Gene Ackman, playing the senator opposite Robin Williams and Nathan Lane in The
0: Birdcage. I'm not even, I don't think I've ever heard of that film.
1: <laughs> it, it's uh, basically the Robin Williams and, uh, and Nathan Lane play a, a gay couple, and uh, their uh, son, adopted son, is marrying the daughter of a United States senator who's a renowned conservative played by Gene Hackman, and he is all against gay rights and such. And so they're trying to closet themselves as just roommates. And it's it really pokes fun of the conservative uh, religious view sometimes of homosexuality and of gay couples. And so I just loved the film when I saw it. And Of course, it's Robin Williams who can just play it over the top without it ever seeming like it's over the top.
0: So coming back around, though, to my actual scoring, then I had to give it a five for the industry just because of how much it was a critical darling and swept through the Oscars and was the crowning of Clint Eastwood as being recognized as awards worthy, finally. But at the same time, I mean, the audience was good, but not great for this movie. So I went with a three point five for an eight point five overall.
1: I thought the industry, there were some critics. Gene Siskel was one of the biggest ones who kept saying there was too much superfluousness uh, in, in this film. English Bob was, was a character that had no purpose, no meaning, should have been eliminated from the script and from the movie. So, And there were several of those. As a result, I went with a 4.5 for the industry because there was some criticism of the film to that regard. As far as the public goes... This was a big film when it was released, and it was one where, you know, again, I always talk about you have to put things in context. When you're talking about going to the video store and a film is released and they have like 12 copies in your uh, video store, you know it's a very popular rental. And I remember this having something like 12 or 15 copies, and most of them were gone when it was rental. So it had a huge rental life afterwards that continued on well past its release in the theater. So I went with a 4.5 because I think it did at the time have a significant uh, impact on people and was something that people did talk about and uh, discuss uh, over the water cooler at the time.
0: Okay. I forgot to give the average for the last category. That was a 6.25 between us for impact significance. That's an 8.75 between us. Novelty.
1: So, mine was a nine, by the way.
0: I know. That's how I got the average already.
1: Okay. Yeah, well, I didn't know. If you You know, because I, I
0: did the math.
1: Yeah, four point or four point five plus four point five. Got it. Okay,
0: but that's my uh, grade school education from about third grade with Connie Burrow.
1: Okay. All right. Novelty. I went with a seven point five for novelty. Um, It wasn't that novel. There was the, you know, they talk about this being the deconstruction of the Western. No one's really, the evil person isn't totally evil. The good person isn't totally good. And uh, the the person or the, the damsel in distress that the cowboys come to rescue or help is a prostitute. To that extent, it did kind of bring... The western film into the reality of the west of what the west was and to that extent I, that's why i went with a 7.5 i don't think it was completely unique but i don't think it was completely uh it was not a common trope
0: i had a lot of difficulty with both novelty and classicness for this movie and part of that stems from the fact that while it was celebrated at the time and brought up the same phrase that I led off the show with, the deconstruction of the Western. I do think that if there's anything to be said that's novel about this movie, it's how often they kind of go out of their way to slash through some of the myths of the West. The quickest draw is usually the winner. Little Bill goes out of his way to give a speech about how that's usually not the case. They're too quick and they're not cool headed, so they miss and it becomes a problem. Or the fact that, the Schofield kid kills his first guy and then he gives up killing ever again and wants to give over his guns to Will Money or, you know, that you can't reform a bad guy. I mean, there are so many small things that in the script are there for the specific purposes of undermining some of the classic tropes, if you will. I just don't know how far, though, if you take it for its face value other than the few... Leading dialogue parts, how much you wouldn't say that this is that different from Sergio Leone's movies or from Peck and Paw? I don't think it's quite as violent as The Wild Bunch or The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly or uh, Once Upon a Time in the West or some of those films that were the late 60s, 70s. But that being said, I mean, this isn't really an abhorrence of violence. I think. Everybody's excited by the last scene because you get to see Clint Eastwood be a badass. And so I kind of just went with a seven because I thought if I was going to do anything, and I usually refer to this about the point where I really struggle to give something a score, I figure out, okay, where does it kind of sit among contemporaries? So I went with a seven because that would be on par with The Terminator, Home Alone, and In the Heat of the Night that we've done before. So that's a 7.25 average between us. Let me let me point out one
1: aspect of this that I think goes both to novelty and classicness that I noted, which is this is the only film I can think of where they exhibit in this type of situation apprehension and conscience as to the killing. It, it shows them actually struggling to either... Do the killing or to come to terms with what they have done. Usually every film, everybody just gets shot. And, oh, well, it. it's time to go. Let's get out the beans and the on the side pork and have dinner. Uh, no big deal. This shows it in a much more context, contextual way, which is that this is not a minor act. <laughs> this is something that is life-changing and and that can permeate your soul and your conscience. And I don't remember too many films that go to that extent.
0: I would actually push back a little. I think that there are some famous examples. I think in High Noon, they're they're really grappling with him having to go out. And even though he's kind of married into as a pacifist by that point, because he becomes a Quaker, correct? Then, yes, he's really weighing the option he has to face off with the bad guy who comes into town at the end of the movie. The other notable example for me, I would say is actually the searchers because I do think there are some big conversations weighing on the characters within that movie as to the violence they would have to wreak in order to get the retribution that they seek. Okay. But then again, I would say that just a. Side note, that this is somewhat influential on another Best Picture winner that I'm sure we'll eventually get to, and that being No Country for Old Men, that kind of borrows some of the same abhorrence of violence, even though it's a much more violent film. So then classicness. I mean, it it didn't mince words
1: as far as what took place. I mean, you knew there were prostitutes. You didn't kind of tap dance around it. You knew what was taking place. I mean, the opening scene lays that out. But the fact is that we have, I mean, this is 1880. So it's 15 years post-Civil War and Money's partner is an African-American, which it says a lot. This is a time, this is a testosterone society. Women are limited to exactly the situation that they're shown in this film. Uh, and as a result, I think there's a certain aspect of this that comes out that I think it's fairly classic. If you start with the premise that you go kind of, I started about a seven and go up or down. I went with an eight because it didn't take a huge leap in a lot of different areas, but it wasn't something that uh, is offensive or that there's a problem. And the fact that they kind of downplayed some of the gun violence to some extent, and there was some efforts of, uh, regret uh by the behavior took a different tune so that's why i went with an eight
0: i'm kind of in the same lane as you so starting at my normal seven as the baseline i just didn't find too many places where i could really give points off anywhere nothing struck me as significantly problematic in that we had a significant character being the black partner as you mentioned there We had female prostitutes who had the gumption to go outside of the law to seek an extrajudicious method to find their own justice. And this is one of the purest examples of the modern deconstructionist Western that we've had. But by the same token, as I mentioned in the last category, and I think they do kind of blend together, unfortunately, in this one, because this is just executing on the backs of Leone and Peckinpah as far as deconstruction. I just don't have many reasons to bump this up either. So that being said, I will give it an extra half point for its messages of anti-violence, even if I still think, and we both nominated it as best scene and most indelible, the ending kind of glorifies some violence because that's the scene that you really gravitate towards is Clint Eastwood being a badass. So I'll give it a slight edge up for a 7.5 which makes a 7.75 average between us. Rewatchability, not as fun as Rio Bravo, High Noon, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but important to revisit every so often, so I'll kind of sit at about a 6.5. It's a
1: film I need to watch more regularly than I have, simply because I think the more often you watch it, the more you'll glean from it. Um, So I went
0: with a 7. All right. So that makes it a 6.75 average between us. Audience score, we had an 87% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9 overall. So all added up, we had a 6.25 for Legacy, an 8.75 for Impact Significance. We had a 7.25 for Novelty, a 7.75 for Classicness, A 6.75 for rewatchability and a 9 for audience score, giving us a final total of 45.75. Yeah, and I actually did the math right without having to use the calculator on that one. Ooh, impressive. That would place it in between Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Pillow Talk. Oh, okay. I would have never thought that when we suggested this as a movie to do for the podcast. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I think there are many people that would argue with our scoring on this one. Too high or too low? I think too low. Especially if you're going from a critic standpoint. I think a general audience might agree with us, but... But we're not critics. That's true. Well, we kind of are. (laughs) Okay,
1: we're in um, in the legal realm. We would be called what is lay experts.
0: I'd be okay with that it's somebody who
1: by not by training and experience but somebody who becomes knowledgeable about a subject beyond what's normal in the general public based upon experience interest and
0: application i usually refer to that as an amateur expert but
1: uh, well the, in in legal jargon there it's a lay expert and uh under the both the state and, or of Wisconsin and federal rules of evidence, such experts are admissible in court.
0: I wish I had a yawn on my soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Remaining questions. How is leaving your probably 10-year-old son and 7-year-old daughter to take care of themselves for at least two weeks, respecting the memory of your dead wife? <laughs> that is the number uh, one thing that sat wrong with me is he's leaving them. I'm like, the kid's just supposed to slaughter a pig and a chicken by himself. And just like, Oh, we're fending for each other for two weeks. And if there's any problems, go see the neighbor in what universe.
1: I know they wouldn't have had the wireless or the cordless phone to take into the bathroom to uh, call. You're going to go there, call uh, their parents while they're out for dinner. You know, about how somebody was going to kill them.
0: Well, it got even worse when they took the cordless phone into the bathroom.
1: Dad, Tom's going to kill me. Bang, bang, bang. Sarah, do you have that phone there? Bang, bang, bang. Sarah, do you have that phone? Sarah, I don't care. Just walk into it. Enjoy. I'll clean up the blood when I get home. Goodbye.
0: Did you have any remaining questions?
1: I mean the the way they closed it. Obviously, the, he got some of the money or enough of the money that he was able to kind of set himself up. It would have been it'd be interesting to have some sort of a background story. I mean, you, you could almost do a sequel where it's uh, Money's kid at some point in time in San Francisco, and just kind of see what impact uh, he he had ultimately on his family if his wicked days as a gunfighter uh, just ended with him, or if it somehow altered the lives or psyches of his children.
0: I don't know. I, I just, it does abruptly end and that kind of text over the top doesn't really make sense. It's kind of a weird ending to the film. If you ask me, it's also somewhat of a weird beginning. I understand where they're kind of giving that, a non-narrator view, but I don't know. It just never really worked for me. Regardless, I had two other small questions. How did the county deputies find Ned, but not Will or Schofield? Like, especially if he's heading south. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That just seems a little implausible to me. The other one being, I don't understand why little Bill is protecting the two cowboys so much. I mean, maybe if you want to say that, and maybe this goes back to the whole Daryl Gates thing, but somebody taking the law into their own hands, and I'm the only one that can execute justice, and I've made my ruling. But outside of that, I just, I never quite understood why he's doing it. I just know that he is.
1: Well, you know, from our conversations over the years of both OJ and other high issue cases out in Los Angeles. My thoughts on on Gates and uh, law enforcement in the uh, city of Los Angeles in general. The only thing that was ever of any benefit was Jack Webb and Dragnet. Otherwise, they would have just been a complete black mark.
0: L.A. Confidential?
1: Well, yeah, watch it. It just really, really shows exactly the level. And it, it continued on for decades. So anyway... So I don't have any remaining questions. I will say two things I'd like to mention before we go off. We record early, so but I would like to point out that the date or we're uh, recording on June 29th, yesterday, June 28th, happened to be the birthday of one Melvin Brooks, and uh, he turned 96 yesterday. I hope that there are many, many more birthdays to come. But uh, I did want to mention that that, uh, he has reached iconic status in general as an entertainer. And uh, I hope that uh, he finds or continues to have good health and continues to be uh, productive in his age and uh, wish him all the best. The other is, is we're going to be uh, watching and recording Gentleman's Agreement. I would like to make a wager whether your mother will remember seeing the film. Because when we were first married and we were dead poor, I would go through the TV guide every week and I would put a tape in and record films off of AMC or Turner to watch when we had time over the weekend. And I recorded Gentleman's Agreement and we watched it together. It was in the middle of winter. It was one of those days where it was cold and the house was cold and you were... In your little uh, bassinet on the floor by us sleeping and we watch this film. I'll guarantee she doesn't remember seeing it and guarantee she does not remember the context in which she did. But take me up
0: on that bet. First off, no. I would never bet on my mother's memory. (laughs) But second, (laughs) it's also because I wouldn't necessarily want to bet on yours lately either. There are some things and some details that you're starting to get a little fuzzy on here in your old age.
1: Yeah, okay, thanks. You're welcome. It's just
0: bringing me back to more uh, normal levels. Sure, let's go with that. I do want to mention that we are only a month away from covering our second Mel Brooks movie. Yes. One that you equally are excited and dreadful of because I hope it just doesn't come off as being uh, as being taken wrong. Well, we do this in a very public setting, and we put ourselves out there, and we're going to try. Remember, we have control over Final Cut, so... That is true. That is true. We just can't repeat half the jokes.
1: <laughs> uh, just, just remember... Ultimately, we're discussing a film that's poking fun of racism. So the jokes are meant to show the stupidity of racists.
0: Oh, the Old West. Yes. Yeah, you want a deconstruction of the classic Western, watch Blazing Saddles. (laughs) Well, originally,
1: Mel Brooks sent the script to John Wayne and asked him if he wanted to play the Cisco kid. Wayne sent it back and said, uh, no, I could never in a million years play that part. But I'll be the first one and line for a ticket.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we're going to have fun regardless trying to do that one. But uh, yeah, we'll be taking our life in our hands a little bit. Yeah. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with the mostly forgotten Best Picture winner from 1947, Gentleman's Agreement, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Moss Hart, and starring Gregory Peck, Celeste Holm, and Dean Stockwell. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also sign up for our newsletter on the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmail podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.